everyone, and welcome back to another episode of CFILE Talks. I am Pamela Ferguson, Vice President of Investments here at CFILE, and joining me in studio today are Sophia Thurston, Vice President of Pension Administration and Operations, and Anthony Ferguson, President and Founder of CFILE. In today's episode, we will analyze the management of the pension plans of two companies which failed and were eventually liquidated and provide professional guidance on best practices as it relates to the administration and management of pension plans in the Bahamas. So let's get started with some statistics on the pension sector and its penetration in the Bahamas. What's the size of the local pension market and its penetration? Based on the most recent statistics, the total value of private sponsored pension assets as at December 2017 was $1.1727 billion or 10.5% of 2021 preliminary GDP. And so I, I noticed, um, Sophie, when we go to pension administration, you would give some statistics on on the the penetration of the, the pension market um, and the major pension plans. Give us a, um, some insight um, on so that. So with regard to private pension, less um, than 30% of private Um, companies provide pension plans, and of that, more than 70% is the hotel industry, which means when we look at the financial services sector and retail, it makes up a very small percentage. Um, I was looking at that survey that the Central Bank Commission on Pension Plans, and I thought I... There were a few things that I felt was of note, and it, it mentioned where in private pension plan, the largest asset class was government securities as government-registered stocks, which was like about 44.7% or half a billion uh, dollars. So I thought that was interesting. And then when I tie that to national insurance, I think there was a report I read recently where uh, it was either the IDB or the actuary was saying that they had too much government um, bonds invested um, um, in the national insurance um, fund. Anthony, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it speaks to the lack of opportunities, investment opportunities in the Bahamas and why we need to uh, open up and liberalize uh, the ability for pension funds to invest in the international market. Um, the reality is Bistrix is less than 20 stocks. The average trading position will take you anywhere from 12 months to five years to get out of a serious position. So the default is uh, government bonds and some corporate bonds and uh, from the private sector. So it's, it's a real challenge from a long-term sustainable investment um, 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 opportunities for pension funds. But, you know, it's in recent times, the central bank has liberalized to some degree, but in my humble opinion, not sufficient. So do you think it's also an opportunity for investment in, in bohemian businesses um, using pension assets? No, the problem is a lot of pension mandates require that you have to be uh, publicly traded or listed for three years. And so a lot of pension funds um, asset allocation does not allow them to invest in private equity uh, investments. And, 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 and so until those um, rules are liberalized, um, I think we still will have a challenge. And this is the reason why we um, need pension legislation and need it urgently. I, another statistics I, I, I looked at and thought was interesting was um, the foreign currency 
asset, which was only about 14.1% um, of the overall asset at $165.3 million. Um, what do you suppose we can do to improve that, or do we need to improve the, the foreign um, currency component of private pension plans? Well, absolutely, that's my point. I think we should liberalize it, and it should be given the lack of opportunities, particularly given what some of the larger mandates insist upon, um, that we should have up to 50% or even more um, where they so choose to invest in the international market. But how will allowing more funds to be invested in the international market for private pension plan help the Bahamas? When I have many opportunities to invest and to gain higher returns, I'm helping the pension plan Either one, if it's a defined benefit, reduce their contribution. Two, if it's a defined contribution, when I retire, the employees get more money to spend for their retirement. You mentioned defined benefit and defined contribution. Sophia, um, the statistics showed that even though there was a growth in defined contribution, that defined benefit is still the largest uh, pension scheme with 75.4% of the assets, of the private pension asset being associated with the defined benefit pension plan. Um, you want to give elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, so I think um, the main reason for that is because more than 30, um, more than 80, 70% is the hotel industry, and I think they have defined benefit plan. Um, so because financial services and our retail clients only make up a small percentage, even though they are all defined contribution plans, it still is a small percentage overall. Okay, so when a client decides to commence a pension plan, what is involved? Walk us through that process for a pension plan administration and management by CFAL. So typically, we will either receive a phone call, an email, and I'll try to find out, you know, some information about the company. And so our first step will be providing a pension proposal. So we give them an opportunity to review that, and at their convenience, we will then make a presentation where we discuss our services, we answer any questions that they may have about the proposal. After that, they will make a decision whether they would like to move further and appoint CFAL as the administrator and investment manager. If they decide to do that, we then provide them with an uh, application for group pension plan, and then we request some KYC about the company, and they also have the opportunity to request KYC on CFAL. From there, we will proceed with um, going through with the documentation, pension administration, investment management agreement, and drafting of the plan rules. Once these are all in place, um, then we internally, we can put in infrastructure, we can set it up in our various departments, the pension, investments, compliance, accounting, and from there, we make a presentation to the staff and have them enrolled in the pension plan. So it's more or less a very detailed process. It sure is. Okay. So let's look at two companies, City Market and Taylor Industries, and the treatment of their pension assets and beneficiary following their official closure. To so start with City Market. So City Market was initially owned by Winn-Dixie, and in August of 2006, it was sold to the BSL Holding Group. Now, after the sale, the company struggled and incurred heavy losses on the BSL and was eventually sold again to Trans Island Traders in November of 2010 for $1. The new owners tried, according to a report, to the tune of $19 million to stabilize the company, but they were not successful. And the city market pension plan was managed in-house, and the trustees were executives of the 
company. So in early 2012, it closed down and staff did not receive their pension allocation or their pension monies. And to date, I think that um, they haven't received it. In a report, um, it, it said that the staff pension fund was depleted and funds were used to purchase land and store equipment for another city market location. Now let's look at Taylor Industries. That company was also closed and placed into liquidation in January of 2019. Um, it said, the report said that it was deemed insolvent by $1 million after incurring losses of over $1.8 million over a four-and-a-half-year period. And it was reported that only the government, that's via VAT and taxes, and the employees via severance got a small portion of the monies owed to them from the winding up of the company. So Taylor's Industries pension plan was managed by an independent pension administrator and management firm, CFAL. So we manage Taylor Industry pension. Um, after the company closed uh, and all the book works were completed, uh, the staff of Taylor Industries received their pension plan. So because it was managed by an independent company like CFAL, the staff pension assets were protected from liquidators, company owners, the government, and creditors um, of the company. So I presented these two scenarios involving two failed Bahamian companies that each had a pension plan, one being City Market, where employees to date have not received uh, their pension payout, and the other, Taylor Industry, where staff receive all of their pension payout. Why do you suppose, Anthony and Sophia, the outcome involving these two companies are different, and what recommendations would you have to companies to help ensure a positive outcome as it relates to staff pensions? Well, I mean, in the first instance, right, it's a classic reasoning of why we need pension legislation. Had we have pension legislation, you would have segregation of the assets in the first instance. You would ha have independent trustees, if it calls for that. You would have independent asset managers and administrators. So it is a good reasoning why we should have and consider pension legislation. Now, for those companies that don't, that is considering establishing a pension plan, um, in the absence of government legislation for pension savings, um, then we would strongly encourage them to um, use international best practices, uh, which would mean the segregation of the assets would mean independent trustee, independent asset managers and administrators. And the only reason why the outcome was different was because one was, in the absence of pension legislation, use international best standards and practices, and the other did not. Otherwise, um, um, Taylor Industry may have found itself in a similar position as uh, a city markets uh, for some time back. Yes, I agree. I think the process differs in that there is segregation of duties. Um, when an administrator investment manager are appointed, um, the assets are not commingled. The participants receive timely statements and timely information. Um, when they are terminated, um, the process is simple and they are able to be paid in a reasonable time. Having a trustee, investment manager, pension administrator, a pension committee, you know, all of the roles are defined. Um, and when it's in-house, I think you don't have that. Okay. 
Um, so since the city market pension saga, um, has the government implemented or amended legislation to safeguard those companies that choose to offer their staff a pension plan? And if such legislation is not or had not been implemented, and if the government were to implement this legislation, what would you want to see in so such back legislation? In, in 2012, the, the government sought to provide a bill for the protection of private pension funds. However, the regulations for that bill never completed. So to date, we still have no pension legislation. Um, that bill sought to provide a framework for good governance, oversight, enforcement, and protection. And we, as Mr. Ferguson said, we still need that. We need that here today. Um, so I would like to see some pension legislation. Well, I, I, I had the good fortune or the misfortune to have sat on all of the committees with respect to developing the um, pension legislation. And um, it's unfortunate and regrettable that um, it has not been implemented. Um, I believe it's the challenge is a lot of companies and employees would consider it a tax, which is, is not, uh, because it's for their own benefit. And had we had pension legislation and mandatory savings, I submit to you that uh, national insurance would not have had to, and uh, the government, to um, dig into its pocket to provide um, 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 for persons during the COVID lockdown, or not to the tune that they did. So, um, while it's difficult and while it requires some self-sacrifice, um, we need to implement to make mandatory savings. So, for instance, we have a significant underfunded, not recorded pension liability in the civil service because they don't contribute. So, you know, when you take all of these things together, I think it is important and it's imperative that sooner rather than later, government um, institute and mandate some form of forced mandatory savings. And again, let me just declare my interest. This is what we do. So I don't want to want to say we are, we are uh, pushing this because it will benefit us. Yes, it will benefit us. But certainly, I believe it will benefit the Bahamian citizens and retirees much more than it would benefit CFAR or any of the private um, um, pension administrators locally. So we've been talking about <clears throat> pension legislation for many years. I mean, and all it requires if the, is the government or an administration to have it on its agenda and just sign it into law. Why do you really suppose the government is holding back on implementing uh, mandatory pensions in the country? I, I think it's two things. Well, first of all, when they sit in parliament, they get there, so they don't really care about the rest of us. That's number one. Number two, um, 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 they, for whatever reason, are afraid that there will be this backlash, outrage, that you are imposing another tax, which in reality, it is not a tax because that money belongs to you. Unlike national insurance, where it's mandatory that I make a contribution, I have no control over the management, the implementation of how those funds are spent. With mandatory private pension plan, however, I have the ability to say I only want to be in conservative investments. I want a combination of conservative and aggressive or whatever you want. But the point is, it is not um, I'm subject to mismanagement is not subject to uh, uh, deficient management and is not subject to um, 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 being out of your 
purview in terms of how it is executed and managed. You mentioned um, national insurance and it being a tax. That brings us to our next question. There has been lots of talk about national insurance recently. Um, So let's try to address some of the points raised, starting with the age-old question of whether national insurance is a tax. What are your views? Is it a tax? All right, let me, let me start with giving a definition um, that I found. I, it says a tax is a compulsory payment imposed on persons and companies to meet expenditure incurred by the government for the common benefit of the people in the country. And so based on that definition, I think it's a tax. I further went into looking at whether it's an indirect or direct tax. And Vasquez 2009 indicated direct taxes are taxes on individuals, including income taxes and employee contributions for social insurance. And indirect taxes are defined as those collected from firms, including sales and value-added tax, employer contributions for social insurance, and various excise taxes. So there we have it. <laughs> I agree with you totally. I think it's a tax. But let me hear from you, well, I mean, look, Anthony Ferguson. The, uh, what, what do you want to know? I mean, the, the fact of the matter is um, um, all countries need a social safety net. National insurance is a social safety net. And so through collective contribution, we are being and taking care of our brother's keeper. And we call ourselves a Christian nation, and so that's part of being a Christian nation. We have to take care of one another. Now, the question about national insurance. The challenge for national insurance is an age-old one. When national insurance was conceived, it did not, the designers, the framers did not anticipate and plan for all of these payments that we are making today. In 1994, as way back as 1994, I think 1995, Ken Whitker and I submitted a proposal to the then government, Minister of Finance, outlining that by 2029, national insurance will go broke if certain things were not done. So this is not new. I mean, it's laughable every time they do, they do these actual you know, reviews well, we, we, we forecast this back in 1994, 1995, right? And to date, nothing has been done, say, for increasing the um, contribution or the average, uh, what you call ceiling. it? Ceiling, right? But there's been no structural changes um, to account for all of the um, current payments that we are making. There have been no serious adjustment in the asset allocation to increase the expected returns to meet our actual liabilities. So we find ourselves where, whether you call it a tax or not, it has to be adjusted. The retirement age has to go up. So, you know, we could all sit around and debate. We either want a functioning system that is going to take care of our less fortunate in the community, or we collapse. It's just that simple. I agree. It's a tax and an important social safety net, and we need it. But let's not be mistaken, it is a payroll tax on employees and employers um, earning. We got our national uh, insurance scheme from the UK. And according to the UK's National Insurance Informational 
National insurance is a tax on earnings and self-employed profits. Your national insurance contributions are paid into a fund from which some benefits are paid, which includes state pension, statutory sick pay or maternity leave, or entitlement to additional unemployment benefits. So at the end of the day, it's important, but it's a tax. I think another point where I want to support that it really is a tax is when you look at the national insurance legislation. It talks about, and I was surprised when I saw this because I always thought that national insurance was just separate and apart from the government and the government's only role in national insurance was making contributions on on behalf of employees that work at the government. But according to the act, they said any temporary insufficiency in the fund to meet liabilities of the fund under this act shall be met from monies provided by parliament. And, and, and the government is mandated to, on an annual basis, take money from the consolidated fund and put into the national insurance fund to help uh, with the administration of the post office, to help with um, um, persons who didn't contribute to national insurance and they're getting old age pension, and also any other social assistance um, um, the government deemed um, adequate. So with the government having such control over this fund, by definition, I mean, all of these things come together to make it a tax on, on, on earnings, yet it's important. It's important and we need it as a social safety uh, a net. But that brings us to our, the next question. What are your thoughts about increasing the national insurance contribution rate? That's been another hot-button topic um, that we've um, been discussing in recent times. So uh, while I, like, I don't disagree that it may need to be increased, I think um, the management of the fund we need to look at. I heard a report yesterday where on a year-to-year, we are paying out more than we receive in revenues. And, I mean, when we go back just to simple budgeting, if you continue to do that, obviously you're going to run out of money. And so why would you have a plan where you are paying out um, more than you are receiving? Should we not address that first? Let's bring that in line before we increase the rate, because it will never be enough if this is the basis from which we are starting. Well, I mean, okay, the reality is this, right? Um, we are an archipelago, right? So by definition, our administrative costs compared to single island administrative costs would be much higher. However, I believe our administrative costs is just too high, right? Uh, if you look by any any measurements, right? So we need to find a way to, to, to deliver... Um, the service in a more efficient, I mean, more cost-effective way. I agree with you, Sophia, not everything you said, but if I had a say in what happens, I personally would prefer the implementation of mandatory savings as opposed to increasing um, national insurance, where then the citizenries have more control over how their money is um, invested, and they pretty much uh, know that it's in all likelihood, once you have all of the parameters in terms of uh, independence of trustee, et cetera, um, that they would have um, be more positive about what's happening there than, than, than national insurance. And then finally, uh, government employees need to begin, at a very minimum, new government employees should be made to contribute to national insurance in, 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 or some sort of mandatory savings scheme. So um, it will give, I believe, folks uh, a, a better feeling of, the monies are being vested for my benefit and not to the whims of whatever uh, decision 
the the government of the day decides they want to dip into national for? I, I think, I agree with both of you, and I think what we need is real reform in order for national insurance not to bankrupt employees and employer. Right now, the total contribution is 9.8%. Employees pay 3.9%, and employers pay 5.9%. And according to the actuary report, they want to increase the total contribution to 16.9% by 2029 and eventually to 22 plus percent by 2036. Well, sorry, sorry. I, 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 I need to take this plug. The part, Ken, Karen, myself, and we talked about this from 20 years ago. I, I, I you know, this but are you is agreeing with that? Huh? Are you agreeing no, with that? No, 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 no. I, I'm not saying I agree with it, but we said, and in and, and many speeches and presentations we would have made over the last few years, we suggested that at some point, national insurance is going to be over 20% in one time. We've, we've been preaching that. Unless we fundamentally redesign the administration management of those assets, in, in another 20 years, we will be no further apart, and it'll probably now be the 30% of your, 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 your salary. So it, it's just not sustainable. When I, when I look at that, I compare that to the UK's national insurance. It's very complex because it's, it's evolved over time, right? But generally speaking, right now, they just had an increase that took the employee portion to 13.25%. And that's only, that started a certain amount. So not everybody paying national insurance. If your salary is too low, you don't pay national insurance on that. But they increased the employee portion to 13.25%, and the employer pays 15.05%. So a cumulative rate about 28, uh, over 28%. But national health is also included in that. That includes all of the things that national insurance include, but also uh, national health. So I think the justification to increase national insurance just so it doesn't, it doesn't bankrupt, I think it's irresponsible to use that as your basis for wanting to increase national insurance without trying to totally reform the, the program so that to make sure that this fund is viable, that when people need it, it's there and they can utilize um, um, the, 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 the funds. I, I agree with Mr. Ferguson. I think the retirement component needs to be taken out. We, have, we need the pension legislation. And I think why that is important is that um, persons need to know that, you know, if I contribute um, to this at the end of the day, if something happens to me and I don't receive those funds, my beneficiaries will. But as it, it stands now, I have been contributing to national insurance since 1991 when I started to work. I have never claimed for anything. And as it stands, the fund is looking to run out. And so if I didn't have a private pension, you know, I, I would be terrified. But more importantly, if, God forbid, something happened to you, um, your, your family is not entitled to any of that contribution you would have made over the last... But that's why years. it's a tax. And so it's a tax, <coughs> and the purpose of this tax is to provide a social safety net for the citizenry. So I agree with that. I agree with national insurance. So let's insurance. take out the retirement. And no, <laughs> I think it should remain there because not everybody will have the opportunity or not everybody will have the means to pay a pension and to get monies that will be able to sustain them um, when, they, when they pass on. It's like an insurance. If I decide not to insure my home and put the funds on the side and at five years of saving something happens to me, I would not have accumulated sufficient money in order to, to pay to deal with that, um, that tragedy. So I agree with national insurance. I think, though, there needs to 
to be reform. There needs to be transparency and reform and, and look at implementing a broad range of reforms to help save the plan, but also to, to, to have pension legislation for persons who are working um, to contribute to that for the future um, as well. I think there needs to be a holistic view and not just allow the plan to be managed anyway and then turn around and say, um, we need to tax you. I, I am frightened that that they would want to take this tax to 16.9 or 22%, and government can, the minister can direct any type of investments that they want on national insurance, whether it's in the best interest of the, the public or not, they can do this. And so, and that affect the returns of the pension plans. So I just think there needs to be real reform um, with the plan, and they need to be transparent, but also there should be pension legislation so people have something to fall back on if they um, face hard times. Well, Sophie and Anthony, we have come to the end of another episode of C-File Talks. Thank you so much for contributing to this discussion and thank you, audience, for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please send us a note at info at cfile.com or visit our website at www.cfile.com and show your support. Thank you, C-File, for sponsoring this episode. Until next time.